0: Hi everyone. Thanks for coming. I've been doing such a fun thing at these readings, which is I've been doing a big group <laughs> selfie. So can I just, just so I can prove to uh, you know family and friends that some people did show up, you know, and it wasn't just uh, hey. Uh, okay, so I just need to flip it. Is that okay? Do I have everyone's consent yeah. to post this? And nobody's like undercover and the weather underground and like hiding out or anything or you know. Okay, ready? So we go. Skylights Skylight. Yay! Okay. <laughs> all right, well, so thank you so much, all of you for coming. I have some really dear. I spent I had the privilege of spending the winter in Los Angeles. I may well do it again like the old bogey that I am kind of doing an early snowbird kind of thing and um, so I spent a lot of time with friends old and new including my awesome where did she go? Where's my cousin? My cousin Courtney, screenwriter so now I even got family out here on the left coast um, so it's really great to see everyone, and uh, thank you all for coming out, friends, old and new. And um, I think, you know, I always debate, like, should I read some new, slightly debased section? Oh, I guess I'm competing with the children's hour. Okay. Um, it's all right. I love kids. Um, <laughs> not in my readings. Um, <laughs> Um, so um, I always say, like you know, should I read some deeper, darker part of the book, like deeper into the book, and then I always end up reading this chapter <laughs> because it goes really fast um, so just to say, you know, for those of you who aren't uh familiar with the book yet, hi, Paul, how are you? Um, this is great. It's like little mini uh debutante baller for me. Uh, <laughs> Um, so if you're not familiar with the book, it has two timelines. Uh, the the book starts the weekend before 9-11. Um, a young affluent couple named Millie and Jared have, uh, live in the Cristadora, which is a real building that, you know, it was a very derelict building that went luxury in the East Village in the late 80s and really became kind of a flashpoint for gentrification and for the changing city. And, um... They have recently adopted a little boy named Mateo, an AIDS orphan whose mother, uh, Isabel, died of AIDS in the city in the early 90s. So now it's the weekend before 9-11. So that's the start of one timeline that moves forward in time as Mateo grows up and what happens to that family. And that goes all the way until... Uh, 2021. But it moves back and forth with another timeline that starts in 1981, which is the year that actually AIDS was identified as an epidemic in New York and on the West Coast. And a lot of that timeline is about his mother. Uh, a young Latina from Queens who finds out that she uh, is infected and kind of lives in secrecy and shame with it for a while and then she slowly finds her way to the AIDS activist movement in the late 80s and becomes very involved with that and develops some very key and fateful relationships in that group. So the book goes back and forth because I really wanted to try to create a book where past and present are always bleeding into each other as they often feel to me like they do in New York. So uh, so this, this chapter is actually the very... It's from 1981, which is the earliest chapter in the book, and it's called Directly Observed Therapy. What if they could ban smoking in all city restaurants and bars surely anyone would say it was a crazy idea New York thrived on smoking it was a city of smokers in and out of the bars, in offices and walk-ups the sidewalks alive with bobbing Marlboros and Virginia Slims and Newports and the neurotic, fearful hands of people in Armani and tracksuits but what if, what if the thought kept nipping deliciously at the edge of Ava's other thoughts gotta make a dentist appointment gotta stop at Balducci's and buy coffee and brie oh shit, gotta make a dentist appointment for Emmy as she dressed for work that morning with Sam off already for his run around the reservoir and Emmy already being walked to school by Francel. What if she became the health commissioner who banned smoking in restaurants and bars in the first big city in America? It could happen by 86, 87, she thought. First, nab the top spot, then start a public campaign, get Koch's support. She could make her big mark by the time she was 43, 44. People would say she was crazy, but if you didn't think big thoughts, how could you make anything happen? Isn't that where big change began with big, bold thoughts? Women, particularly, needed to have more big thoughts, she believed, recalling all the theory books about women and health she'd read in grad school, suddenly wanting to reread them all, just to reconnect, just to refresh. She was having so many thoughts! How would she get them all down on paper? Into proposals, outlines, workable flowcharts? She needed to invent a system to catch all these ideas. The public programs, the public-private partnerships, the synergies, even just ways Rennie could run the department better. She needed to enlist the help of that intern from Columbia whom Rennie was sending her way, the one he probably plucked because he was Puerto Rican just like Rennie. Rennie isn't so bad, she found herself thinking, though she usually hated the man. Well, no, okay, not hated, chafed under the man, her boss, for God's sakes. But Rennie could be funny and warm, all his iconos when he was fed up with red tape and the bullshit stonewalling and inertia out of Koch's office. She was going to reach out to Rennie today somehow, touch his arm, set up a lunch table, Once she had some of those ideas down on paper. In the mirror, she examined her hair, her clothes. She tore off her jacket and the metallic gray blouse with the bow tie and pulled out the purple silk shell with the deep scoop neck, put on a gold chain over it. Why did she always separate day and night clothes? Why couldn't she bring just a little bit of luster into that drab office? She picked out a slightly higher pair of heels, grabbed her brush and the hairspray, and made her hair a little bigger and looser bumping up the black feathers on either side. A darker lip gloss. Work was more fun this way. Goal number one for today, Wednesday, May 6, 1981. Have fun! Do the work, but have fun. Sam came in, sweaty, once she was downstairs, nibbling a piece of toast, downing a quick cup of coffee and going over memos for meetings later that day. The infant mortality rate summit in early July, the herpes thing, the problem with the restaurants in Chinatown. He was her hunky Brooklyn boy, her strong-jawed, dark, curly-haired Elliot Gould, her lawyer man with the soul of an artist. She was surprised and pleased by the surge of attraction she felt for him at 8.14 a.m., a time they were usually both so busy getting themselves and Emmy out of the house, they barely managed a goodbye peck on the cheek. "Come here, you big, sweaty lug,' she said, putting down her papers. "'You will have to suffer through my New York accents tonight. I'm just letting you know.' Um, she said putting down her papers slouching back and parting her legs which led her to another thought she wasn't a girl from Queens anymore she was an upper east side woman she made it she would never really thought about that Sam looked at her funny but intrigued <laughs> I thought you didn't like me sweaty especially when you were all pulled together for work she stood up kicking off her shoes things change she said aiming to sound smoky His eyes narrowed at her, a little dumbfounded, a smidge concerned, then a smile of gratitude bloomed. No bullshitting me, Aves. She shook her head slowly, reaching for him, pulling off his sweaty old Cardozo Law t-shirt. She wasn't bullshitting. Oh, my God, her work clothes were coming off. This was happening. Suddenly, they were on the kitchen floor. Holy shit, Aves, exclaimed Sam, what the fuck? Francel stopped in with a bag of groceries. Oh, good lord, she blurted out. She all but dropped the bag on the floor near the door. She retreated, calling back, I'm running more errands. (laughs) Irv and Sam burst out laughing, mortified and delighted. This would certainly make things awkward around the house with Francel, and kept going until they were both done, then lay there on the parquet, closed down around their ankles, breathing heavily, exhausted. Was something in your coffee? Sam asked her, cradling her on the floor. She giggled. You just look so sexy to me, all sweaty. My Elliot Gould. All right, I'm going to jump ahead. Now she's on her way to work. Okay. The glorious spring day, the flowers blooming on the dividers on Park Avenue, the rough thrill of the six train downtown, the preponderance of good-looking men on the subway and on the street, which she seemed to notice with a special zeal, even though she just had sex with Sam, I could have sex all over again right now, she thought, amazed and delighted, walking down Worth Street, aware of feeling sexier in her scoop neck blouse, higher than usual heels, fluffier than usual hair. She was only 38, for God's sakes, the youngest deputy health commissioner the city had ever had, and maybe the sexiest, she thought with an inner giggle. On the way in, she passed Lauren from TB control. They didn't get along, usually, but she surprised herself, exclaiming, Such a lovely day, isn't it? As they passed. She seemed to surprise Lauren, too, who nearly winced. (laughs) "'Yes, it is,' Lauren replied. "'I nearly didn't want to come inside.' "'I had no choice,' she sang back. "'I have a full plate today.' She stopped in the office kitchen for a second cup of coffee, then carrying it with panache and a certain boom-boom in her step, she thought, swung into her own office, and there was a handsome young Hispanic man in a shirt and tie, square-framed glasses sitting on his face, in the chair in front of her desk with a stack of files on his lap. Probably not a day over twenty five. Oh she exclaimed. Well hello there. He looked up, startled. Oh uh, hello doctor. He rose abruptly, some of the files slipping from his lap to the floor, and they knelt down to collect them together. I'm Hector Hi Anthony. Um I'm Hector uh Villanueva from Colombia. "'Oh, of course,' she smiled. "'You're my intern for the summer. "'Dr. Follier told me about you. "'Well, hello, Hector,' she extended her hand. "'It's nice to meet you. "'Please just call me Ava.' "'He looked at her quizzically. "'Are you sure?' "'I'm sure, I'm sure,' she said. "'He was certainly handsome,' she thought, "'settling behind her desk. "'But so shy and awkward, she could already tell. "'And those glasses, he had such large, "'lovely brown eyes behind them. "'Hadn't he heard of contact lenses?' I'm sorry I'm sitting here he said even though he wasn't sitting anymore but was standing nervously the stack of folders in his arms Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Conti said it was okay because she didn't know where else to put me until you came in it's fine she said her mind already thrumming with all the different projects she could put him on it wasn't this sweet she already felt a bit maternal toward him I came up at Bellevue I know how to work around distraction I'm not one of those lab geeks he laughed awkwardly. She noted, oops, he probably was one of those lab geeks. <coughs> so, how's Columbia, she asked. Lenny, uh, she caught herself. I'm sorry, she said, all mock and trite. Dr. Ferrer said you were interested in infectious ID? He nodded soberly. I am. But why? Infectious is over. Everything's been figured out. Why not cancer or heart? That's where the big work's going to be, and the big money. Well, he stammered, he was so nervous was she talking too hard too fast scaring him well in the developing world infectious oh I get it you want to do ID in the developing world oh well that's a different story lots of work to do there you're from where the DR Uh, the PR he said they both laughed a bit at the inadvertent wordplay we came here when I was 13 ah si muy bien she said maybe you can help me with my Spanish among other things because it's not very good sure i'll help you he said softly she smiled she hadn't even been serious but he'd taken her seriously he was sweet if only he'd lose those dorky glasses he didn't know how handsome he was she needed to bring them back on point her busy day her meetings the outlines and flowcharts she wanted to work through all right let's talk about what i've got on my plate and how you can help me out she began and just then speaking of id bloom rapped on her door came in and handed her a brief ignoring hector You seen this? Bloom asked. She scanned it, eyes widening. Another Kaposi sarcoma report out of St. Vincent's? And a 32-year-old guy? Bloom nodded. Another homosexual? Ava handed Hector the memo. Here's your first task, Hector, she said. Xerox this for me. Hector took the memo and left the office. She turned back to Bloom. This is, what, case 7 in the past few months? 8. What the hell do you think this is? This cancer is like A few old Jewish and Italian men once in a blue moon. I wonder if it's Hep B related, Bloom said. It's rampant in the gay community. Mmm, a virus-linked cancer, she mused. Either that or too much disco or nitrites or sex or something. This bugged her. Not funny, Bloom. You know my brother's gay. Hey, I'm serious about the nitrites. What the hell could it be? And you know LA's reporting a bunch of PCP cases in homosexuals. You know, my sisters, yeah, she said. I read about that. Hector returned with her copy of the memo. What's your take on this, Hector? If it's community-based, it feels epi to me. Hector looked down. I haven't been following it, he all but mumbled. God, this boy is so uncomfortable in his own skin, Ava thought. Then again, hey, he was like 25. He was a kid. She told Bloom to call a meeting if and when the next KS case came in. She couldn't spend more time on this today. She had multiple meetings to make, projects to push along, briefs to plow through. And all by three o'clock. Then Emmy. She set up Hector in a windowless office. Well, frankly, it was a large closet, a few doors down. Then she plunged into her day with gusto. She bore down on her folder, scratching out flow charts on her pad as she picked through briefs calling in Rosemary a few times to dictate a memo to her. You're going too fast for me, Rosemary complained at one point. I have a lot on my plate today, she snapped back. Okay, so I'm going to skip ahead. So she takes Hector downtown to inspect some restaurants in Chinatown. And after they inspect the restaurant, they sit down in the restaurant and they have some egg drop soup. Um, so they're sitting down there about to eat the soup. Okay. Um, so where are we here? Where are we here? Okay. Um, we need to feed this boy, Faye, two egg drop soups. Special for you, Faye said, leading them out of the kitchen. She and Hector sat up front. Did you see that poor guy in the back? She asked him. I wonder how much they're paying him. Do you know they're trying to unionize at the Silver Palace dim sum parlor Good for them. It's slave labor over there. They're scared, though, because they're immigrants, Hector said. She looked up from her soup at him. Would you do me a favor? His eyes widened, frightened.
1: "Would Would
0: you just take off your glasses for a minute? Take off my glasses? Yeah, just for a minute. He obliged her, removing the squarish plastic frames. Now that was better. Have you ever thought of getting contact lenses so we can see how handsome you actually are? He smiled and blushed, exquisitely embarrassed. I have them, but they hurt my eyes. When did you come here from Puerto Rico? When I was 13. Oh, so you went to high school here then. Bronx Science, she beamed. My brother went to Bronx Science. I went to Cardozo. Uh, Did you have Mr. Levy with the cauliflower growth on his neck for chemistry? I did, he smiled broadly. I love that guy. How do you know about him? My brother. Oh, right, right. They were both quiet for a second. She felt an incredible surge of identification with and affection for him. So, tropical, huh? He nodded soberly. Tropical? Tropical was not really her bailiwick. You've read all about the uh, the dengue outbreaks in Cuba, she ventured. Yeah, and Castro trying to blame the U.S., he laughed. But she couldn't really focus on a talk about tropical. She was still wired up from the meeting that morning, and even from the brief volley with Faye. Health is a shock pit, she said, his eyes wide and confused. health health, health the d o h oh Lauren St. Helia hates my guts. did you see the way she was looking at me in that meeting? Hector grinned slightly, Well, you kind of hijacked her presentation. Her mouth fell open, she was shocked and a touch offended, then suddenly amused. <laughs> you really think so, she asked well it's it's he was flustered now. I mean, you had a good idea, but she was getting to the same idea, I think. I hate how slow people are with their ideas. She nearly barked at him. Oh, I lost my place. Where not I? He popped back in his seat. Spit it out! Spit it out! Let's save time! The more time we save, the more we can do. He laughed uncomfortably. I know, but, but she suddenly felt affectionate, playful toward him again. Do you have a girlfriend? She asked. A what? A girlfriend. A girl. Friend. Uh, not right now. You like girls? He was squirming and she liked it. How far could she take him? She had no interest in her food. If anything, she wanted a drink. Also, she had to go back to the office and make sense of the flow chart she'd been diagramming during the meeting and bring it into Rennie. Should she call Rennie right now from the payphone? tell him to set some time aside for her this afternoon? Oh wait, shit, but Emmy, serendipity at three o'clock. How much work could she get done between now and three? I, he was still squirming. I'm too busy for that right now, he said. I want to publish. You want to publish, She cried. You're too young to publish. I'm ambitious. I can see that. Okay, fine. You want to publish? I'll help you publish. Don't worry about it, Bronx science guy. Now he finally smiled. Thank you, he said. She let the fish off the hook. Their food came. He ate with gusto but she barely picked at hers. She felt like she was losing hold of her thoughts. They were running ahead of her now just a bit too fast and she didn't like the feeling it gave her. A few times she felt an urge to cry but she pushed it back." Okay, so I'm going to just jump ahead and then get back to the office and she has lots of ideas that she wants to share with everyone. So <laughs> so um, she barges into Rennie's office. That He's the health commissioner. <coughs> I want five minutes of your time. She stabbed her pad with her pen. I have a way we can get three times as much out of that meeting in probably half the time. It's just a process issue. Okay, Ava, Rennie said. Why so gently? That was annoying. But not now. Lauren glanced at Rennie. Ava, she ventured, "'Ava, what? Are you angry at me, Lauren, "'because I stole your thunder in the meeting? "'Because if you are, I'm sorry. "'The idea just came to me, and I came out with it.'" "'No, Ava,' Lauren said, her voice firm and loud now. "'I'm worried that you're cycling.'" She sat straight up in her seat. She made a high, indignant sound. She laughed sharply. "'You're worried that I'm cycling? "'That I'm cycling?' No, Lauren, you're pissed off about the meeting, so you're going to say instead you're worried that I'm cycling when you well know that I was diagnosed unipolar, not bipolar. Ava, Rennie said, I think that in retrospect you've been ramping up for the past two weeks and now you're cresting. With a Herculean effort, she sat back in her seat, said not a word. Then slowly, with excruciating enunciation, even if I am this... She tapped her pen on the pad. It's a better way to do things. Rennie and Lauren looked at each other helplessly. How infuriating. Fine, Rennie said. We'll go over it, but not now. Oh, come on, Rennie. All I wanted was five minutes. God, she sounded like a girl from Queens now. She stood up, pat in hand, and walked out. She heard Rennie mutter to Lauren, I have to call Sam. That stopped her cold. She could not see Sam go through the torment he had gone through a year ago. She stepped back into Rennie's office. Don't you dare call Sam Wren, she all but shouted. That is not showing concern for us. She stalked back toward her office, well aware that Mrs. Conti and the rest of the support staff had heard her and were tracking her, peering over their fucking glasses as they typed. She stopped at Hector's closet. I'm going to my office and closing the door and getting some shit done before I go get my daughter, she announced. He looked up. She noticed he was looking through the Caposi's briefs Bloom had brought in earlier. Okay, he said. Are you okay? She put a hand on her hip. Do you know what I hate, Hector? I hate when people see good, energetic impatience, when they see a touch of activism in the middle of a fucking ossified bureaucracy and they want to pathologize it because it scares them, because it means they might have to get off their own fucking asses and actually get something done. And it sounds like already, even though you know what I'm about, you see me that way too. You're scared of me. He shook his head. No, I'm not, he said. But she could see the briefs trembling in his hand. She stared at him good and hard. Her affectionate and aggressive feelings toward him were all mixing in her head confusingly. She wanted to cry. Instead she thought, he is literally sitting here in a closet. That was hilarious to her. I hope you know you're literally in the closet, she said. (laughs) Then she was horrified. Had she just said that? He turned pale, his mouth opened. I'm not in the closet, he said, but it came out a croak, barely audible. She held her stare. Voices in her head were telling her to continue to taunt him, but something else broke through. A tender voice told her to spare the boy. I'll see you tomorrow, Hector, she said. She got back to her office and closed the door. Her fat folder awaited her. She had exactly 80 minutes until she had to leave to meet Emmy. Okay, so then... Bloom comes in the office. He came in, shut the door, sat down, and leaned in a bit toward her. Aves, everybody's worried about you, he said. She paused. She gave a helpless, bitterly amused laugh. She laid her palms flat and open on the table before her. Bloom, I can't win this one, can I? Every bit of passion or oomph I ever show from now on will be judged through the lens of last year, won't it? If I'm not tamped down on so much fucking lithium, I can barely think straight. I'm just a ticking time bomb around here, right? He laughed. Thank God somebody could still laugh at her the way she wanted. No, sweetheart, he said. No one's been doing that. It's the past week or so. You've been different. Bloom, her voice broke. Bloom, I've been feeling good. She started crying. She could do that around Bloom. I've had energy. I've had ideas. Don't take it away from me. But Aves, he leaned forward more. Look at yourself. You're crying. Do you really feel good right now? I'm feeling. I'm feeling, okay? He sighed, shook his head. Would you just call Vikram and talk about the lithium? You want me to do it with you now? i told you i have a million things to do before i go meet emmy you're meeting emmy soon we meet every wednesday at three at serendipity why don't you take a valium now then i will consider taking one she said but bloom just sat there you are not doing directly observed therapy with me if that's what you're thinking bloom stood up all six feet two inches of him he was the boy from midwood they understood each other i know you hate that you have this thing he said You have to think about keeping yourself and your family safe. Safe, she snorted. We all get crap to deal with, and this is yours, Aves, he said in a suddenly sharper voice. Be a grown woman. Boone left, closing the door behind him. She cried. She knew the good times were coming to an end. She should be heading uptown, she thought, but she kept tweaking the damn outline she would made so she could fully implement it in the morning. There they were, the tears and the anxiety, wrestling right alongside the exhilaration about all her plans, that lust for life, that rush. Goodbye to all that. She stuffed her yellow pad into her work bag, slung the black garbage bag of Hello Kitties. She bought like a bag of She was leaving Chinatown, she saw these little Hello Kitties for sale, so instead of buying one, she bought like six. She bought like every color for her daughter. Um, She stuffed her yellow bag into her work bag, slung the black garbage bag of Hello Kitties back over her shoulder. On the sixth train uptown, she gave withering looks to people whose body touched hers. Finally, to a man who bumped into her, she said, you could be more careful. Fuck you, bitch, she said, before getting off the train. Her head was racing. She should take a Valium before meeting Emmy, but in the pit of her stomach, she could remember the dead Valium haze from last year, the hell getting off those things, how proud she was she hadn't needed one in three months. Being with Emmy would calm her, it always did. She never took her illness out on her child. They were going to have fun today. She stepped into serendipity. There was Emmy, sitting on a white chair, alone at a white table, waiting for her, her dark curly hair pulled back in barrettes that were woven with pink and blue ribbons. Her trapper keeper was in front of her, with the big pink sticker letters on the front spelling out, Millie. Emmy being short for M, M short for Millie. She smiled when she saw her mother showing a mouthful of braces. Then, when she noticed her mother was hauling a black plastic garbage bag, the smile disappeared. Her eyes hazed over with fear. But Ava didn't see that. She barreled into the restaurant, knocking down a chair with the black plastic bag. You can't leave a chair out in the middle of the room, she huffed at the waitress who hurried over to pick it up. Emmy! Suddenly, she was leaning over, kissing Millie, who cringed. She had school friends just a few tables away. She knew they were already looking over, giggling. I come from Chinatown, bearing gifts, exclaimed Ava. One by one, she pulled the Hello Kitty dolls from the plastic bag, arranged them in an arc on the tabletop. Aren't they cute? Her mother was cuddling up next to her, asking about her day at school, and mm, were they sharing a frozen hot chocolate together like they usually did? Yes, said Millie, but I have to go to the bathroom first. I've been waiting for you to get here. Walking toward the back, Millie could hear how loudly her mother was talking to the waitress, as though she wanted the whole restaurant to hear. In the back, at the payphone, Millie called her dad's office, waited for his secretary to put him on the line. Somewhere deep down, she'd broken in two again, just as she had last year. But for now, she put herself above the shock and the humiliation and the knowledge of what the next few days or weeks or months would be like. We need to come to serendipity, she said when her father came on the line. Mom's breaking down again.
1: <sighs>
0: <sighs> that Ava. She's cycling. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening, guys. And uh, now I'd like to welcome up my dear old friend from the New York days, a brilliant. Talented writer, editor, and teacher in her own right, please welcome Darcy Cosper.
1: Thank you. Hi. Hi, thank you for coming out, and thank you, Kelsey, and thank you, Skylight Books, for having us. Did you guys know it, it's almost the 20-year anniversary of Skylight Books? Isn't that amazing? I moved here. I moved here I think when it had been here for six or seven years already and I can't imagine a Los Angeles without it it's, it's such a special place I'm really honored to be here with you so, and to. I'm so excited to, um, to be here to talk about this book I, uh, those of you who have friends who write like Tim know there's always a moment of anxiety when a friend gives you a book <laughs> that they have written and you think oh my god I hope it's good Right I hope I don't have to lie, <laughs> and what happened for me as I began to read this, but I had the moment of anxiety and 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 within a couple of pages, it had gone away completely, and as I continued uh, my there was I had so many experiences, but it was it was a kind of ecstatic joy that a person I knew and loved had produced a work that was so extraordinary. It was Tim and I, I was saying we were little girls together in New York. We both moved there in the 90s.
0: Bad little girls. <laughs> bad,
1: oh, we were such bad little girls. Um, and and so the the New York of the late 80s and early 90s and mid 90s that he brought to life it I I went through several days of feeling as if I was almost hallucinating I was walking through Los Angeles but it was like I was wearing those Google glasses and all I could see in front of me was the New York City of the 90s that Tim had brought to life all around me um the experiences the kind of times that we had lived through the way that the city felt um, and, and that strange uh, feeling both of like the of, of kind of the trailing dresses of Basquiat and Andy Warhol and Keith Herring kind of disappearing out the door and all of the, that kind of brightness and um, uh, unshadowed Delight uh, that had existed in New York in the 70s before the AIDS crisis began. Um, I felt like I got there kind of watching it disappear and beginning to see, on the one hand, really seeing the shadow of the AIDS crisis descending and also um, the, the weird movement of gentrification through the city, which, on the one hand, was great because I lived there for a decade and was never mugged, which is fantastic. Um, but but what comes with that is also a lot of loss so it was it, what I came to feel as I was reading this book was the and this is one of the things I want to ask him about to start with is that these other I had moved from feeling like oh my gosh I hope this book is good to this book feels to me and I've read a lot I, I um, have been a book reviewer since the mid 90s and so I read a lot of contemporary fiction and I hate most of it and um, <laughs> <laughs> uh uh and and so the books that I love are, are few and far between and I really mean it when I say that I love a book and, and this book struck me not as just a good book but a great book and a, a significant book, an important book. The books that came to mind as I was reading it in particular were Don Delillo's Underworld and Let the Great World Spin by Colin McCann. Because they that this book has the the scope and the intricacy and the depth and the the reach and the range and the nuance um, the ambition um, and the beauty that those books have and so one of the things I wanted to start by asking Tim about was like did you have a sense, one is did you have a sense when you began of how big this book was going to be and the other is did you have any literary models in mind as you, either as you began or as you were working through it
0: mm, mm, mm. um Well, I did not have a sense of the whole book. I had not written fiction in in many years. uh, And uh, and I felt like a deep need to uh, write it again. But uh, I didn't have a whole book in my head. So uh, I just tried to uh, connect with some of the things. I just said to myself, well, just write a story just write a short story that became kind of, I guess, a long story or almost a novella which became what is essentially the first chapter of the book. Mm -hmm. I said, just write a story about things that are kind of sitting on your heart, you know, and they were uh, the very long shadow of AIDS and the city, because I've lived there 25 years this summer, so I feel like I've really lived through, if not the whole uh, presence of aids in the city uh, m- most of it i mean i missed the 80s but mm-hmm. there, you know things changed so dramatically from 96 on that and um and also you know my own struggles too with uh like mental illness and with drugs uh i was more or less past them but, but the you know when i started writing this but i did feel like they were experiences that um i had not really uh Externalized, I, I you know, I don't really know what the word is, but I mean, but I I felt uh, you know I was really certain, like I didn't want to write a memoir, you know, like some said, some people said, why don't you try to write a memoir? And I and I did, and it just felt very well. For one thing, I didn't remember a lot, so <laughs> that you know, I didn't feel like it would be a very reliable memoir. But it
1: but that's more, a blessing sometimes, isn't yeah,
0: it? Yeah, b- b- believe me, others have told me thanks. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, but moreover, I didn't want to just write a memoir. I felt like I wanted to write a novel of the city, mm-hmm. you know? Like, uh, and certainly when you talk about other books, uh, I mean, so many, uh, you know, New York to me is a character, you know? Like, New York to me is almost like a brutal lover that you can't, like, walk away, you, know, you can't, like, walk away from, so... Uh, there was that. I mean, honestly, I think, and I know, like, a lot of people, particularly women, don't like him, but I thought a lot about The Corrections writing Mm -hmm. this book, because he had these very long chapters where it's like you were almost, like, on a roller coaster with one character, Mm -hmm. um, and you just didn't know where, how it was going to end, you know, or where it was going to crash, and I really wanted to write chapters like that, you know, where you are just completely like strapped in with like one character, and the and the chapter is just moving at a kind of a breakneck pace, or it just feels very uh, destabilizing. You know, um, so I wrote that first uh, chapter, and uh, and then the second one I wrote was like several years. I can't remember because I kind of reordered the chapters a little bit for the book, but. It was not chronological. I was always jumping around, and my idea was that uh, I kind of saw the book as like a collection of like loosely linked short stories, and that at the end of every story, you would find out what the link back to the last. So it would be almost kind of like beating a chain or something. Mm-hmm. And after about five or six chapters of that, then I started like coming back to characters and started like weaving them into the same chapter and. I did not have the uh, I did not have the idea for the whole book and all of the connections that occur in the book. That was really cool. That some of the key ones did not even occur to me until I was I had been working on it for like a year or something. Mm-hmm. And I and I remember like a day like I was out for a run along the East River and I just made a connection and that sort of tied the rest of the book together. So it was very. Um, no, I did not um, I did not uh, <laughs> conceive of the book Epic in scope. It just really kind of evolved, and that was great. That was really great because the books that I wrote when I was younger I did outline them from mm-hmm. like top to bottom and it was a bit like coloring in the lines and a bit boring, you know, mm-hmm. so I really loved like I feel like I was really searching for something with mm-hmm. this book, you know like I was really searching to understand. Things that I had had lived through or were witness, you know, like there's so much. You know, I've been like an, an HIV/AIDS reporter for 20 years. I've interviewed like hundreds of people, you know, many of whom are no longer here. And I always wondered, you know, what will all these interviews and all these stories add up to? You know, like what will I ever make of these and like the bigger? And I think it. I think this book is what where I ended up
1: I'd love to talk about that a little bit more that idea of those vas- the voices and we were talking a little bit about this before if anybody's been following that what one of my friends called um, Sombrero Gate which is the um, there was a, a writer named Lionel Shriver a, a fairly high profile writer who at a uh, she was the keynote speaker at a literary festival and uh, what so it to her keynote, she wore a sombrero, and the keynote that she gave was a, um, a contemptuous dismissal of uh, of the critique of cultural appropriation um, that. There's a conversation happening in the literary community right now about the absolute necessity for consciousness about um, inclusion, representation, um, kind of restorative justice and reparations in the literary community. Um, And in particular, these questions about who is allowed to write whom, who is allowed to represent whom, um, in what ways should that be done and Shriver kind of dismissed the entire conversation as absurd and unnecessary that any individual would would think that they had the right to, from her perspective, police um, an author's representation of any individual um, and, and it was kind of a in the literary community I think fortunately a sort of scandalous and shocking conversation where most people felt this is this is a, a ridiculous move backward, the conversation's a tremendously important one, authors are thinking carefully and thoughtfully about these issues and, and when I heard about it one of the things that I thought about was Tim's book because he did make some really bold moves in terms of writing outside of his own personal experience, he wrote um, both men and women. He wrote both straight and gay characters. He wrote um, both white folks and people of color. He wrote you know rich and poor, uptown and downtown. And one of the we, we had talked about it before and one of the things that. so I just want to ask him about like what if you'll talk a little bit more about what we talked about, which is how did you, how did you honor those voices and, and what process did you go through to not, um, the, to, to be part of, to, to be conscious of and to honor the idea of representation in the book?
0: Right. Um, well, as I told you about, what, two hours ago maybe, um, and this question has come up, this question came up, somebody brought up Lionel Chivers? Shriver? Shriver. Shrivers, yeah. Someone brought her, uh, her up a few nights ago in, in Boston, I think. Um, well, first of all, like I told you, I mean, I did feel very conscious about writing these diverse characters, uh, and I wondered sometimes if I should, uh, it's very funny. I have a good, I have a good, uh, friend, successful novelist of color friend, who you know, who I'm not gonna say, because I don't know, if we were just having an intimate talk, but you know, who we were talking about this recently, and he said, I don't think that white writers should write, uh, you know, characters of color. And I said, really, never? I said, like, you just think that, like, you know, white people should write white people? And he said, well, let me get to, I don't mean that artistically, I mean it politically. Hmm. And I said, do, I mean, do you mean it because, you know, the majority still, I mean, even though I feel like we've, we're seeing big changes in the past few years, the majority of what still gets published and who chooses what gets published are... White writers, white editors, et cetera. And he said, Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. So I uh, feel really uh, sensitive about you know I'm really attuned to that, to this conversation. Uh, and I had, um, you know, I had, uh, I don't know if misgivings is the word, but I certainly had a caution about it. Uh, but I also felt like I just did not, you know, and in writing and working in HIV AIDS and, and writing about and interviewing people, befriending people for over 20 years, my, I did, my experience was a diverse one and it was not one of just gay white men and I just really didn't want to write that story again. I mean, Larry Kramer's written it 400 times. <laughs> right. And I, um, I just, it was not the experience of AIDS in New York that I knew. So... You know, I felt that the characters that I wrote were, they are blends of people that have been very close to me, who I've really loved, who've like shared their lives with me and vice versa. Um, And so I just tried to proceed thinking of them as full people with full lives, you know, who, uh, and certainly not angels, obviously. I mean, Hector, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's really funny, some of the online reviews there, some people are like, I just couldn't get past some of the things that these characters did. You know, it's interesting, like, there's such a continuum of, like, forgiveness and, like, empathy on one hand, and some people just saying, I just couldn't stand, you know, I couldn't stand some of these people and, and the things they did and the choices they made. But, um, I just tried to proceed, really, like, hold them close. And then and then when I was done, I asked, you know, I had, you know, I have, like, a good handful of friends that, who were, grew up Puerto Rican or Dominican and in yeah. New York, and I just asked them to read the book and just say, is anything really wrong, you know? I mean, I felt like I've lived in New York for 25 years. I was thinking about lots of friends and lots of people close to me, uh-huh. and, um, and they were, you know, I mean, they might have had, like, a few very, very small things. Uh-huh. Like, I also just tried to take a very light hand with it, too, you know, and not, like, over... Because the other... People are Jewish in the book, you know, and I really felt like I wanted to create a portrait of New York of the New Yorkers that I've known Mm -hmm. for 25 years. And a lot of most of the time, these lives don't overlap, but sometimes they do, you know, and especially if you live there long enough, you work in a field like AIDS. They they do. You know, these lives really do intersect. And and I wanted to show that in the book. And there are other places in the book where the characters don't intersect because I don't think they would you know? Like there's a point where Millie says you know, like her mother gets her shit together and she goes on and she ends up doing a lot of work in uh, for the AIDS community in the city and there's a point where it, it you know, it says Millie really didn't really want to know what, she just didn't get that involved in her mother's work because she found it depressing. And that's you know and I think that's you know the way a lot of New Yorkers live like you just sort of stay in your lane Mm -hmm. you know so I wanted the book to show New Yorkers intersecting but also not intersecting Mm -hmm. you know
1: I want to in all in that Vein of the the intersections and and kind of going back to your idea, the the thing you talked about with the friends and of the voice after voice after voice. One of the things that I found fascinating is you talked about these two timelines. One which starts back in the 80s and moves forward that has to do with the the AIDS crisis and the research, and the other that has to do that starts in just before 9/11. But those two timelines don't proceed. Linearly, One of the, th- and I've actually read online, one of the things that I found fascinating and to me just seemed like a puzzle that I needed to solve or something I needed to keep up with, but I've read some criticisms of it is that people feel very um, baffled and disoriented by the nonlinear nature. And so what I wasn't able to figure out for myself and what I wanted to hear from you was, I guess, two pieces. And one is broadly, what was the effect that you We're going for when you designed it that way. When you made a decision to do not just one non-chronological narrative, but two non-chronological narratives, and was there any was there any particular pattern that you decided on, or some an organizing principle?
0: Right. Um, I mean, the general pattern was like to go back and forth you know so, so if I, you know if there are two or three chapters in a row took place in like the 80s or 90s like you know then i would go back to wherever i left off with the with the present day family in like 2012 or 2013 but i think the reason i did it well someone said the other night i forget who it was but they said it was really cool cuz i felt like i was on an elevator and i never knew what floor i was like going to be <laughs> let off on you know that's great and i kind of love that because One thing I really want, I'm a very, very, I always say, like, if the the best birthday gift anyone could ever give me was if they would let me go back to New York for just one weekend back in time, you know, and what year would I pick? And I could just like mull over that forever, because I am so obsessed with like what clubs people were going to, and what the talk, what the zeitgeist was, in the city, and I mean, you could just put me alone in a white-walled room with like all the New York magazines like going back to 1968, and I guess if you put an IV drip, a food drip on me or something, like I would just be in pay heaven, you know, like I would just read them all. Um, And it always comes around to, for some reason, like 1974, you know? Um, Because it's not, like, it's the end of the 60s, but it's the beginning of disco, and it's early the city when it was just, like, in the shithole, you know? Like, (laughs) just the absolute rock bottom, and yet so much was going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. So... Um, you know, so one thing I wanted to do was just utterly, for every chapter, just utterly recreate that year, you know, but also not try to do it in an overly cheesy, like, Uh beating you over the head with it kind of way. But, you know, the deeper reason that I wanted to do it was because I wanted, I think I said this at the beginning, like, I really wanted this sense of, like, the past and the present like, constantly bleeding into each other, Uh you know? And I wanted you to Look at the characters and look at the story both ways, from two ways. Mm -hmm. One, like you're seeing someone like Hector in more recent years and you know the hero that he was. And, you know, in the very next chapter, like you're seeing him as the hero that he was in in the Golden Boy and you know what's in store for him. Mm -hmm. And similarly, you know, right in the first chapter, that Isabel died so, you know, I think in subsequent chapters when you see her young and vibrant, like you know She's already a ghost in a way, you know, and I wanted the book to feel very ghostly in a way that it's constantly and that the people in the present day can't move forward because they are haunted by Mm -hmm. ghosts of people that sometimes they didn't even know, you know.
1: One of the things I found amazing about the book was that I felt like I I had read and seen a lot about that period from like 85 to 96 or into the later 90s. Um, But I hadn't seen many depictions of the point at which the AIDS crisis was over when AIDS stopped being a death sentence and this incredible but also bewildering time when people who were absolutely convinced that they were going to die suddenly were no longer going to die and had actually run up like hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt had lived as if they were going to die the next week because they might in fact have died the next week and suddenly weren't going to die and that the bizarre... Right, bewildering, incredible, horrifying space that that opened up, and one of the things uh, that I saw enter into it as that we lived through was that almost the second plague of crystal meth addiction arose um, in that space. Right in in the book, it's a a man, it's Hector who goes through a, a terrible loss, can't imagine how he's going to sustain that loss and then is introduced to crystal meth and is like, oh, now I know how I'm going to survive the rest of my life. And and to watch the effect that we know that drug has on people was really astonishing. Um, so I was really moved by that, by getting to see, right, that uh, uh, that different kind of haunting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could ask you questions all night, but I, I think it's time for you guys, if you would like to ask questions of Tim. I, you know, just I, What what was that turning year when people, when it no longer was a death sentence?
0: I just want to get the history really in my mind. Right. Um, well, it was, ni- ni- 1996 was really the year that, like, combination therapy that, like, you know, I mean, they had been coming online. The new drugs had been coming online in trials in 94 and 95 and really all kind of, you know, they re- really went fully on the market in 96. When you added the new drugs to the older drugs, that was really the, for most people, for most, not for all, like it was still far from perfect, but that was a really dramatic turning point. Mortalities really plunged from 96 on. And uh, just like Darcy said, I mean, it was called Lazarus syndrome because people who were really at death's door and looked like it came back to life within months. And you know, stopped looking like cadavers and started putting on muscle mass again, and just.
1: And the linked gratitude to the cancer community. I mean, the survival of cancer also, which was directly dependent on the AIDS research. Um, so, so it's really important. I think this particular medical history you are trying to bring across. Um, what did you learn in writing the book about about AIDS?
0: Well I had been I had been a re- HIV AIDS reporter for 20 years before writing it so I mean a lot of the M- medical history or the political history or the treatment history in the book, which I also tried to like find just the right balance, you know, like I didn't want to make the book too like top heavy and walk out and just, you know, <laughs> make the reader's eyes glaze over. Um, but I, uh, but I wanted to include it because I felt like it was a really important and fascinating history that had never really been put in an, in a narr- in a fiction narrative, you know. Um, So I knew a lot of it. You know, a lot of the book was just sort of taking what I knew and weaving it into like a fictional story with characters in a way where it wasn't too like overdone. Um, I mean, of course I went you know, I went back and I looked at timelines online of exactly like what happened when just to make sure that like it, my fictional timeline was synced up correctly but it was um, you know, it was knowledge that I had kind of been accruing for, you know, I had written for an AIDS magazine called Pause P-O-Z along with Stacy right here and so um, yeah, so it was a lot of, you know, it was a lot of stuff that I had, knowledge that I had been building up for like for 20 years. I don't think
1: you have begun to touch it, you know, in terms what we live through. You know, I mean, I, I, it, it's sort of the. Like, oh, I can't even. Think somebody else should ask a question, but thank you for taking it on. Thank you, Brad. I'm so excited to read this now. Um, I lived in New York in 1992 and 1995 to 2003, and I'm obsessed with like earlier New York history, and it's weird to think, like, oh, that's right, I was
0: like, part of the history and reading like, your own history. I'm really excited about it. But what, just a little bit you read. Um, how did your work as a journalist influence your ability to, to write character voices? And I guess in the question were... Did, did you think my accent was okay? <laughs> Are there I any like native New Yorkers know. here that want to critique I, my I like my, the my accent? accent? Okay. <laughs> um, the, the, uh, the question I guess would be, um, you know, as an author of fiction, how much were these, I don't want to say based on people, but did you use the... in, in interviewing people as a journalist and having that experience, did some of those voices inform how your character spoke, what they did, or, or how did that work in your process? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I feel like for every character, I maybe like, I mean, God, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve different people were kind of uh, who I've known were kind of floating through my head, and you know, I feel like some of the characters are—I don't want to say types, but like maybe archetypes. You know, I mean, I feel like I've worked with so many Avas, you know don't fuck with them. Don't <laughs> fuck with that type, you know, whether they're on a manic episode or not, you know. Um, so, but, uh, yeah, I think the. I mean, one thing about the journal, I mean, two big things about the, you know, because I had many years of journalism between writing this book and, like, the ones that I wrote earlier, and I think it did change my writing in two big ways. One is that you really just kind of um, don't over fuss about writing, like, you just kind of sit down and do it you know, because when your life is deadline after deadline, like, a lot of the sort of, uh, comes out of writing, you know, because uh, you can always go back, you know, you can always go back and, and revise, and I think also, I just got, um, this book is much more, uh, like, I guess unadorned, you know, than like, the novels that I wrote, when I like, I really just was not so, you know, when you're constantly being edited and cut down, I mean, not cut down, you know, when you're constantly being, you know, edited down, and, and they're cutting the piece by 200 words, 400 words, like, all of your, um, oh, but I'm such a beautiful, poetic writer, that all goes out the window. Like, it all really just becomes about, like, good storytelling and, like, vivid details, and are you keeping it moving, and how are, how are the quotes? How are, so, you know, I think that all went into this book. Like, I was not overly concerned about it being overly literary, you know? Um, I just wanted it to be very vivid, you mm-hmm. know? I wanted it to be very Filmic, actually, where I, I kind of would picture like the camera like right on a character's shoulder you know for long long periods of time and then maybe at some point the camera would swing around and like you'd be with someone else so I kind of use that as more as a guide for the writing than oh this meta you know I don't have enough like beautiful metaphors on this page or you know
1: and um Tim do you want to just in case there are folks in the audience who don't know do you want to know Do you want let them know about one of the results of having written an extremely filmic book Oh, wow. what has happened as a result of you having written? oh yes well it's
0: been optioned but I'm very happy you know it's been optioned by <laughs> <laughs> it's embarrassing um, but I know I love it come on Kim along um, no I'm just kidding um, now stop we're more stop TV more
1: show, TV show TV um, show it's been
0: optioned it's been optioned for a mini series by Paramount TV which you know it's an option I mean come on guys this is LA right we know what happens to those <laughs> Um, but it, that's very nice and uh, what's very nice is that it would be um, it would be adapted and uh, directed by Iris Sachs, who is a really wonderful filmmaker who made uh, Love is Strange and he has a new film Little Men and uh, you know and his films really kind of capture like everyday domestic New York life in a way that I feel like is very similar to a lot of the book um, and Carrie Fukunaga who uh, did True Detective would be would be the producer so that's all I mean you know I really hope that happens we'll see we'll see
1: so everybody keep their fingers crossed yeah. all right I think um, we need to wrap up so um, if you'll hang out for oh, wait, can m- we take one more question yes please I was going to say that you shouldn't underplay that success because it's a communal success I mean there's so few yeah. that, that sort of
0: circulate lightly and your book was so thrilling it's not a question more comment for me is that everyone on my Facebook world is really excited about it. They're talking about it, they're reading it. The book is really moving out of, kind of subcultures into larger think, larger public spheres. And I find that really thrilling. And I think it's really exciting. And I'm incredibly happy for you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's sweet. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And you touched on something that I just want to say, you know, like I was ho- I was really holding I was holding space, I guess is like this new... Were we just talking about that last night? What does that <laughs> even mean? How do you hold space? You know? Um, have you been hearing this term? The Lordy, yes. All the millennials, they love to hold space. <laughs> I mean... Any, I'm sorry, I'm probably offending some. I don't know. We look pretty, we look pretty long. A, oh, I no, there's my cousin.
1: I think it's uh, out of the mindfulness tradition, maybe. Oh, is that
0: no, what it's talking no. about? Okay. Anyway. Anyway, right, yeah. Um... No, I'm, I'm glad you said that because um, I did I, I, you know like when I was 22 I remember dating a guy who at the time was 33 and he told me that he had been to three dozen funerals and memorial services and I remember thinking I mean talk about micro generations like what a difference even just 10 years can make you know, I remember thinking I will never know, I will never understand, but in the ensuing years, I feel like I dated or had crossed paths with so many guys who who lived through such an era of loss and grief, and just loved them, you know, and uh, didn't feel like Felt like that story was a very submerged story that had never been told. Mm-hmm. So, among the things I wanted to do w- with this book was to try to have a, you know at least one character that kind of embodies that particular experience of gay men today who were you know if the, of among those who survived are now like in their fifties or their sixties, um, and so I do think it's a really important you know chapter of. Of oh, queer right. history and of history and of American history, so I don't—I don't mean to, to take it lightly, and I appreciate that. And
1: yeah. it does feel that, that it's like it's a love letter and a monument to a generation of men and women to the. Um, the activists and the researchers and the people who worked inside the system and the people who worked outside the system, who, who brought this change about in the community and then like continued to help the community survive the right when the crisis was over. Right, there was still decades of mourning and rebuilding to do. And as this generation that like, you know, as um, Tim has just gotten involved after the Pulse shooting was part was starting a, a group called Gays Against Guns. And And it was one of the things that I saw was a a poster going around that said, Congratulations, terrorist, you've just turned the attentions of the gay community on the top issue in the United States. And I don't know if you've been paying attention for the last twenty years, but these queens get shit done. Right. and I feel like so I just want to thank you Tim for writing a love letter to the queens who got shit done
0: oh that's sweet Darcy thank you yeah I think that's going to be a, a really hard nut to crack actually the, the gun one I yeah. really um, is a very frightening uh, gun culture and you know the gun industry has really learned expertly how to play gun lovers and you know after every mass shooting gun sales go up because they perfectly deploy that moment and say, you better go get more guns because Obama's going to take your guns next week. And it's it's a very scary cycle that I don't, I mean, I'm really glad we're doing this work and like the kind of limited way that we can do it, given that, you know, we all have other jobs, et cetera. And, you know, it's very, I'm glad we're doing it, but I don't I mean, if I knew the formula, I wish this queen knew the formula to break the gun lobbies back in the next 12 months, but I really don't, you know? But I do think it's important to to work at
1: so mm. <laughs> thank you um, everybody for coming out yeah, so thanks we're going to take a pause and then Tim will be available to talk with you individually and sign books and thanks again Skylight for having oh,
0: oh, us oh yeah Oh, and I forgot this is my like Craven media ho moment please like please Instagram please Facebook please tweet please Insta tweet please Facebook <laughs> fec- Facebookgram Emma's Amaz- tweet Whatever you do, please, please uh, do it. I'd really, I'd really appreciate it if you helped me uh, spread the word ab- about the book. Thanks.
1: Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, everyone.
0: <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.